Um, thank you. Yes, I have a, a book in hand, and it's going to be used very shortly, I promise. But Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Bokitov, good morning. I hope everyone is well and safe and happy. I wanted to uh, begin this morning uh, by sharing with you a memory, and the reason why this memory came to mind is because the Torah portion for this morning, which is so famously and popularly known and uh, understood as being the story of Korach, the famous rebellion against Moses by members of his own tribe. The Jews complaining and rebelling against Moses is an old story. But in this respect, what's unique about it is, is that it was from Moses' own family. It was his mishpacha. It was his unzura. It was his own people, the tribe of Levi. Some of the leaders of that tribe initiated rebellion against him. And the long, twisted story, one of the conclusions that we have in this is uh, the election of the tribal system on a ritual level that is still with us today. And the uh, pronouncement of there being kohanim, there being priests. In other words, people, families, a tribe set aside that would be responsible for the administration of the ritual life of the Jewish people even in ancient times, emerges from this morning's Torah portion. And the memory that came to me this week, uh, because I grew up uh, in a rather traditional home, my synagogue was uh, quite traditional, is that over the course of the Jewish holidays, that um, at some point during the service, that the Kohanim, the priests, that they would go to the front of the sanctuary and they would recite, the, they would, the term is, they would give a blessing over the congregation. The Levites, who are, so to speak, cousins of the Kohanim, of the priests, the Kohanim actually was one family in ancient times that was drawn out of the tribe of Levi, of the Levites, and they were set aside and said, now this family is going to be for the Kohanim. But they were still cousins with the Levites. So by tradition... It is the Levites who are called forward even to this day in synagogues. And by the way, um, and God willing, it should be soon that we all can go back to Israel. And when you go to Israel on a Shabbat morning and or certainly on weekday mornings as well, they perform the duchening. And the priests need to have their hands washed as an act of purification before they bless the congregation. It is the Levites who do it. So as a child, I remember, you're not supposed to look at the Kohanim as they're giving the, uh, the blessing over the congregation. The tradition is that the, 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 um, the divine presence comes down. And so my father would wrap me in his talit over my head so I wouldn't see. Between me and you, I looked. I'm still here to say. <laughs> I survived it. But uh, I thought of that custom of the priests going to the front, of the Levites being called even today to wash their hands. And I thought, obviously, of another custom that comes to mind, which is the Torah reading. Now, unfortunately, because of the circumstances that we're in, uh, the synagogue is effectively closed, but in normal times, when the Torah reading is taken out, individuals are given aliot, the honor of being called to the Torah. And the very first person who was called up, who is bestowed with the first aliyah, to the Torah reading is a Kohen, is a priest, followed by the Levite, then followed by everyone else. And these vestigial ideas 
and practices have a fascinating root that I wanted to discuss with you this morning. It is a question that is still challenging us this day because all the questions and situations that involve these, um, these separations and differences on ritual matters, are these things still important? Is it necessary to remember and recall who's a Kohen and give them a particular distinction and who's a Levite and give them a particular distinction? In a more uh, local level, the question that we had is when the congregation decided and agreed to become completely and fully egalitarian, the immediate question that emerged was um, are women entitled to be a uh, Kohenet or a Levi'ah? Are they entitled to be both a Kohen and a Levi? And one of the, uh, and one of the decisions and conclusions that we came to was that if a woman had a father who was a Kohen or a Levi, that they would be given the very same honor that a man whose father was a Kohen or a Levi was given. The reason why there is some, certainly some profound flexibility with these things is that once again, these are vestigial rituals and ideas. And I want to take you back to a time where people struggled with these differentiations, with these vestigial elements in a far more intense and certainly problematic way than we do even to this day. And I want to bring you back a few thousand years to take a look at it. You see, after the Second Temple was destroyed, any and any of the places, or the place, excuse me, where the priests, the Kohanim, could do their work was destroyed. The destruction of the second temple of Jerusalem was, in fact, the nail in the coffin to a very ancient form of worship that Jews engaged in. We call it in English, sacrificial worship. In Hebrew, it was called Seder Karbonot, that, that form of bringing sacrifices to the temple, having it administered by the Kohanim, by the priests, having the Levites there as adjutants and support and administration of the temple experience itself, certainly by the time the temple was destroyed in the year either 69, 71, or 73, depending on which calculation you use, but roughly about 2,000 years ago, it was already coming to its end. One of the things, this is a dis discussion for an entirely different time. But some of the fascinating research that is coming even now, 40, 50 years later, from the interpretation and research on the Dead Sea Scrolls, is the idea of where prayer emerged in Jewish tradition, because remember that there were no Sidurim, there were no prayer books, there were no Chazanim, there were no cantors. The cantor is here, I can see him, you can't see him. There were none of those things. And so the way that the Jews worshipped was not with words, but with sacrifices. And so one of the things that the Dead Sea Scrolls shows us is how early and in what way prayer began to emerge amongst the Jewish people as a legitimate competitor to the sacrificial system. In modern economic language, we would say that prayer was one of the profound disruptors to the economic model of the sacrifices. But when the temple was destroyed, Kohanim and Levi'im, Kohanes and Levites, were effectively unemployed. There was nowhere for them to go. There was nothing for them to do. The temple was destroyed. There were no more sacrifices to be given. 
And so the discussion I want to bring to you brings us exactly to that moment. The great American rabbi, Joseph Soloveitchik, of blessed memory, once remarked by saying that one of the brilliances of Jewish tradition is that when you open up a book, be it the Talmud or a Chumash, a Bible, and you look at all the commentaries that are there in front of you, printed on left and right and the center and the bottom, you see the record of thought and discussion and argument that reaches back in excess of a thousand years. It's almost like each of those people are sitting in your room and they're talking to you. And they're saying as they debate the question with you and with, uh, with, with each other about what this means for their time and asking us what it means for our time. And so I want to bring you back to a discussion in the Talmud about an interesting custom that we still have to this day. See, last night, as I was at my Shabbat table, we had the challah on the table, and before we ate it, we washed our hands. Three splashes on the right, three splashes on the left. It's a custom you well know. At the Seder table on Passover, we do the same thing. And there's a, there's a discussion in the Talmud between two rabbis after the, after the temple is destroyed. Exactly what remains of this? There was one rabbi, his name was Rabbi Tarphone. He was a descendant of a priestly family, a highly respected one. And he was insistent that the role and the status of the priests still continued after the destruction of the temple. He insisted in every way, and the story involves that he showed up late to teaching a class, and some of his colleagues asked him, where have you been? You're late. And he says, I was doing my work. And what is his work? That he was eating certain foods that are only specifically required, given to the priests, sanctified food. He said that he was washing his hands and washing his feet before he ate them, so he was pure, and this delayed him. And one of the other rabbis, who was the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel, Hillel who said, if I am not for myself, who am I? If not now, when? Those famous and beautiful and piercing kinds of understandings about the human condition. His grandson said to him, this was Rabban Gamliel, he said, you have no more work. It's over with. Later on, the great-grandson of Hillel, another famous rabbi known simply as Rabbi, the rabbi. He's responsible for the construction of the Judaism that we know and embrace and love today. He was the editor, the redactor of the core book of the rabbinic tradition called the Mishnah. And Rabbi, the rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, he says, in concluding this entire discussion, he says, and from this, this is where we learn that we still have to wash our hands. To entangle this discussion is to understand the radical nature of what they were discussing. There is no more washing hands and feet. There is no more sacred or sanctified food only given to the priests. And the hands, the washing of the hands isn't given to the priests anymore. The grandson and great-grandson of Hillel the Great took the custom 
of the purification of the priests and what they did by saying that it no longer exists for the priests, but it exists for all of us. In other words, the role of being pure, the role of pursuing holiness, the role of administering the faith of the people of Israel is not left to a select few, but it is placed in as much in my hands as it is in yours. You might want to ask at this moment, where did they get the inspiration for this radical idea to dismantle completely entirely thousands of years of tradition that came before them? The institutions of the temple that had been built by Solomon, rebuilt by the hands of Ezra the scribe, beautified by Herod the Great. Where did they come to uproot a concept and a pattern of ritual that they believed had been ordained by God through the Torah itself? So they got it from their Zaidi. And I'm going to tell you how and why. Their Zaidi and great-grandfather Hillel, the Hillel that I told you about, the one who said, if I am not for myself, who am I? Right? If not, if not now, then when? All these great and beautiful concepts of human life. Hillel said the following. You should all be, we should all be as students of Aaron, the original high priest. Ohev shalom, loving peace. Berodev shalom, pursuing peace. Ohev et habriut, to love all people. Umukarvan the Torah, and bring them close to the Torah, to the wisdom of life, to a deeper understanding of how to live. With the destruction of the temple, the removal of these ancient modes of worship. These great minds understood that as much as it was a loss, it was an opportunity, an opportunity to reclaim and renew the central mission of what faith is, and that is to bring peace to the world and to be a servant of peace, to love our fellow person and to seek wisdom and spiritual depth in life. It is an echo of an idea that was carried by the great Danish philosopher, Søren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard said thousands of years after this thought that the best way to live life is to move forward, but to look backwards. Shabbat shalom.